Hello, welcome to episode four of Life and Life Only. This is the joys and wonders of meditation. Now, I should just say off the bat, this is not going to be an exhaustive guide to meditation. There are many, many of those in the forms of podcasts, videos online, and they go through the techniques of meditation. What I'm mostly going to be doing is sharing a couple of anecdotes at the beginning here, and then I'm going to be reading some passages from a book which I think is a wonderful meditation book. I'll talk about the circumstances of finding that book as well and passing it on to a member of my family who found it remarkably transformative. I included the word wonder or wonders in the title because I was thinking about the term wonder drug, which we apply to generally pharmaceutical substances, external things that we use to try and fix our lives. Whereas really the answer is always within. I'm not particularly religious, but I have grown to see through knowing a lady a few years ago who was a a Christian who really taught me a lot about it and how it's been stereotyped, so forth. And in the Bible it does say salvation lies within, and I firmly believe that. And reading accounts of people in very extreme situations, people who were on the ill-fated Titanic, people who were in concentration camps, specifically Auschwitz, if they can benefit from things, if they can find inner strength from things, I think we can learn from that. So I really think a daily practice of yoga and meditation together is really all the drugs you need in your life. Anyway, I'm not really here to promote meditation. As I said, I'm here to share thoughts that I think are valuable, and I think you will find them valuable. Let's perhaps clear one thing up. As I've said before in other podcast episodes on my various shows, being an English teacher, I have a slightly ambivalent relationship to dictionary definitions. I think they're useful in one regard, for example, adjectives, but of course they have limitations. On the other hand, they do give quite a good idea of what the popular perception of a word is, because a lot of the times with words that are quite contentious. That's what a dictionary is doing. So dictionary definitions can influence people's use of language, but then people's use of language can then result in dictionaries being updated. But if we take a word such as anarchy, an anarchist is literally someone who believes that the best society is one without a government. But think of anarchy. I don't have the dictionary definition here, but you can imagine it's a state of chaos, a state of uh, disorder. It gives the idea of uh, confusion and uh, implicitly uh, a negative outcome. So anyway, some definitions of meditation. The act or process of spending time in quiet thought. Now already, <laughs> that's problematic. The quiet part I would agree with, but meditation is not about thinking. It's in fact the opposite. It's about clearing your mind. However, there are variations of the meditation practice that could involve, for example, musings. And some meditation teachers would not be happy with me even saying that. They separate meditation from thought very, very, I'm going to say vehemently, but I don't mean that in an aggressive way, because I've never really met an aggressive meditation teacher or a yoga teacher. Anyway, Second definition here, the act or process of meditating, and then the verb to meditate, 
to spend time in quiet thought for religious purposes or relaxation. Religious purposes, yes, but I would call that prayer as opposed to meditation. And relaxation, yes, but as you will hear when I read from this book later on, it's not about shutting down. It's about balancing a relaxed state with alertness. And we will come to that later. Another definition which is slightly different, an expression of a person's thoughts. So this is the idea of, for example, writing an essay that's a meditation on modern life. So perhaps looking at the pros and cons of modern life. That's pretty much a different thing to what we're talking about today. But perhaps the idea there is that if it's a meditation on something, it means that the person has considered it in a deep way. So they're on the right lines in one sense, in the sense it's about contemplation. But uh, as we'll get to, that's not the whole story. So my introduction to meditation, anyone who knows me or has heard my main podcast I've had for the last couple of years will not be surprised to hear that I got into meditation because of the Beatles. Now, you don't have to know the Beatles story intimately to know that they came from Liverpool and they came from not necessarily dirt poor surroundings, but they did come from almost nothing. They were earthy, let's say. And in the 60s, people very rarely travelled. It's nothing like it is today. And I always found it incredible that the Beatles found their way from Liverpool in the north of England to Rishikesh in the north of India. So I was captivated by that, as well as by the practice of meditation. And as I got to know it more, I went through a period of very intense meditation. I have to own up and say that I don't do in my daily life everything that I'm going to recommend to you. But I firmly believe that you don't have to be doing everything in order to see its benefits. What I could say is that I have at some point in my life experienced and done the things that I'm going to tell you about today. So the fact that I don't have a daily practice, that's essentially my lack of discipline. It's something that I am working on. And I'd say that I do achieve what could be called a meditative life. And we will get onto that later. It's another thing that will be covered. So I wanted to share a couple of experiences. I've done the Vipassana retreat. Vipassana translates to something like insight. And the retreat I did, it happens on the first 10 days of every month. And it's in Thailand. It's at a meditation center, which is very close to a famous temple called Swan Mok in the town of Suratani. Suratani is a gateway town between the Andaman Sea Islands and then the Gulf of Thailand Islands. So anyone who's traveled from Bangkok or from the center of Thailand to any of the islands would have passed through Suratani. Anyway, what was interesting about these two retreats I did is that they were seven years apart, 2003 and 2010. And in addition to that, the circumstances around me doing them, i.e. my lifestyle at that time, were extremely different. In 2003, I was in my late 20s. I didn't have a good lifestyle at all. Drinking, junk food. I was working as a teacher, teacher of English and a guitar teacher. I was playing music in a bar. I was having a fun life. And I decided to go on this retreat, not really knowing what it was going to be like and how difficult it was going to be at the beginning. So just to summarize, 
you generally check in at the center on the final day of the previous month. And on that day, you can talk to people and they give you a tour of the center and they explain exactly what happens in the retreat. It's extremely well organized and it's also not expensive either. I have been to ones in England and they were very half-baked, let's say. There wasn't a great deal of discipline involved. But this one in Thailand, I think they got it perfect myself. So anyway, you once you've done this tour, then the silence... Ah, yes, I didn't mention it. It's a 10-day silent retreat. The silence starts on the evening before the first day of the retreat proper, so the, before the first of the month, obviously. And you wake up at 4 a.m. with a bell. Being in Thailand, of course, there's no real issue with weather other than rain, but there's no real issue with cold. When I actually went, it was technically winter. <laughs> winter is really uh, in air quotes there. It was mild temperatures, about 15 to 20 degrees, just about perfect, really. So I woke up at 4, and then at 4.30, we would go to a particular area of the meditation center, which was outside, and we'd have readings by candlelight. People could volunteer, and I, in fact, did one of the readings. And I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be there at 4.30 in the morning, listening to people reading from spiritual texts, sometimes religious texts as well, or Buddhist texts. Buddhism, I don't think, is classed as a religion, or I think it classes itself as a way of life, let's say. We'd then do yoga at five o'clock in the morning. Again, wonderful experience. You would eat at eight in the morning and then midday. So two meals fairly close to each other. And you could pretty much have as much as you wanted. You could, uh, you know, fill up the engine, so to speak, for the day. It was all vegetarian. There was no caffeine. There was no sugar. Or in fact, no, there um, there was fruit. Mostly bananas from memory, but I think there was a selection of fruits and vegetarian curries and soups and salad. It was absolutely lovely. And then from midday until eight o'clock the next morning, you didn't eat. So in 2003, when I came to this, the first three days, the withdrawal period is what's difficult because you're not just withdrawing from alcohol or cigarettes or whatever your indulgences or your drugs are you're also withdrawing from noise and the city because you go to a peaceful place and essentially all your distractions, all the noise, be it actual noise or the noise in your mind from, I don't know, let's say listening to music or going out to bars, whatever it is, is taken away. Now, the idea is not to torture you and in fact, you have your own little room And you even have your own little washing line outside and a bucket and you can wash your clothes. And believe me, after doing meditation, washing your clothes, as we'll get to again later, is a a slightly different thing. You don't do it in a hurry, put it that way. You've got plenty of time to do things. But you're actually told that you can have your stuff in your room. So if you do want to, if you did want to listen to music, you could. But as far as I know, I mean, I never heard anybody doing that. The smokers vowed that they wouldn't smoke during the retreat. As far as I know, people didn't break the rules. You were basically given the option, but through the readings that were given, it was, in a very subtle way, encouraging you not to, in order just to get the best out of this experience. 
as far as I know, there were some drinks. I can't remember exactly what they were. We had something in the evening and we would have during the day, as I said, readings by some of the monks that lived there. They were Thai monks speaking in English. There was one English monk there and he was there in both 2003 and 2010. And he talked about uh, his life in England and how he gradually grew more and more detached from the life that he had. He reduced his possessions down to virtually nothing and he found himself at a temple in Thailand and he talked about the fear of dropping out of society. He was very candid and he was also quite funny as well. The other teachers were, I'm not going to say serious, but they were earnest, but they all spoke in such a calm way. You could just feel the poise and the grace coming from them. So then you'd have lights out at 10 o'clock. So you'd sleep about six hours. Another thing that will make some people laugh or perhaps shudder is the fact that the pillow in your room was a wood pillow. There was a clear reason for this. If you had a very soft pillow, you might fall into too deep a sleep in the evenings, particularly since you're only sleeping six hours a night. Although I do remember having breaks during the day and I did find myself napping for 10 or 15 minutes sometimes then. But if you get in too deep a sleep, you're going to be too drowsy the next morning. I didn't have any trouble really with the wood pillow at all. One thing that was interesting, at that time... I wasn't a very good sleeper the first time I went, 2003. And sometimes I would wake up before the bell. And I purposely didn't use a watch in that 10 days. So essentially, I had no idea what the time was. So when I woke up, it could have been 10 past 10 or one minute to four. What was quite interesting was that usually when I woke up, the bell went pretty much soon after. So I'd woken up 5, 10, 20 minutes before the bell. I did the retreat again in 2010 and the circumstances were extremely different. I'd started doing a diet which was 80% raw food because I'd put on quite a bit of weight at the beginning of that year after I'd been home in England actually at Christmas 2009 and indulged a bit too much. In those days I used to do things very obsessively. Perhaps I still do but in a slightly different way. But I went rather gung-ho because not only was I doing a raw diet, I was going to the gym every day and jogging in the steam room because I'd seen uh, Robert De Niro as Jake LaMotta doing that in Raging Bull. A lot of boxers in the lower weights, they often have trouble making the weight. They come in, they get to the, the weigh-in overweight, so they have to do this emergency thing of losing a few pounds in a few hours. And one of the things you can do is jog in a steam room. So I was doing that as well. And I got down to quite a frighteningly low body fat percentage. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was very, very low. And I looked quite skeletal, but I felt amazing. At that time, I felt possibly the best I've ever felt in terms of my health. So anyway, I went to this retreat again, and I found it much easier. It hadn't changed much. Some of the timings had changed slightly, but it was essentially the same thing. It was still difficult, though. And I had a friend who... Well, an acquaintance, some them say. It wasn't a close friend, but it was someone I knew, another teacher in Thailand. And he did the retreat. And I noticed that on the third day, I didn't see him again. He'd left. And he posted on uh, social media. And he went through all the reasons why he'd hated the retreat. You know, it was the flies. It was the, the feeling of desolation. And he described a, a depressed 
feeling or a feeling of hopelessness. And essentially what he was describing was withdrawal. The same thing I had had in 2003. Because if you withdraw from, as we said, drugs, food, alcohol, noise, city life, constant stimulation, it's not going to be easy. What I found quite magical about the retreat was that at any time when I was feeling like I wanted to leave, it seemed uncanny that one of the Thai speakers would say in this lovely, gentle, calm voice, Thai voice speaking English, would say, maybe a few of you are feeling like this is too difficult or you want to leave. And he would just gently explain why it would be a good idea to carry on. There was no hard selling, there was no propaganda. As I mentioned earlier, it wasn't expensive at all. It was This wasn't a money exercise, you know. I've seen some scandalous stuff with other retreats because spiritual retreats sometimes get melded with spa retreats, which are traditionally expensive. Flotation tanks is another very interesting experience, very worthwhile. But then you go to a flotation tank in the middle of London and they'll charge you an exorbitant price. Thai massages in England... Massages in Thailand cost almost nothing and they're incredibly relaxing. There's fasting retreats where, you know, you can escape. They always joke you can escape the evils of capitalism for $2,000 or whatever it is. The joke in fasting retreats being that they don't even provide food. Anyway, so yes, we did the the 10 days of this retreat and it, it got easier, it got very comfortable by the end. And then on the 10th day, the 10th evening... Again, we were not speaking, or, I mean, we weren't chatting, conversing, but people could walk up to a microphone and talk about their 10-day experience. And that was wonderful. Again, I was one of the people, I'm always the first person to volunteer for these kind of things. It was quite moving at times to hear people's experiences and this collective energy, because amazingly, I think there were something like 120 people on this retreat, and it never felt crowded for a second and they're not talking thing is a good example of how our culture the way most of us are brought up has got everything backwards so not talking is considered weird people would say how can you be around people for 10 days and not talk i couldn't possibly not talk for more than you know two hours or whatever and only eating twice a day were they trying to starve you really you'd have to be there to know exactly what it was like the collective energy You know, we were communicating, just not by words. There was a guy who I had spoken to before the retreat started, so we'd kind of become friends. And they had these little bananas, which were the dessert for the meals. And I always used to, like, pick the tiniest banana and pass it to him, and he always used to smile. So we were still communicating on that level. Another interesting thing that happened, so on the 11th day, we could talk again and I went into Suratani with some people and we decided to indulge ourselves with a cup of coffee and a cake and after 10 days of just having vegetarian curries and the only sugar we'd had was from the fruit simple sugars as opposed to refined sugar no desserts or anything like that I discovered the awesome power of caffeine and sugar now most people who drink coffee or tea I'm going to wager, drink it every day. I'd say pretty much everybody, particularly in an urban setting, 
has sugar every day, particularly nowadays, because if you analysed everything that's in your local supermarket, I'd say there's sugar in pretty much everything. And if there isn't sugar, there's salt. So sugar and sodium really are two chemicals or drugs, whatever you want to call them, that are just everywhere. Anyway, what happened after I had this coffee and cake? I experienced total bug eyes and I've got some pictures of me and I just looked like a madman. I was a little bit skinny, admittedly, because I'd been on this raw diet, as I said. Plus, I didn't even eat large portions the second time I went on this retreat. I'd got to a state where I was just finding it very calming not to eat a lot of food. So that worked really well. But uh, yeah, I, it's one of those things that you just don't know because it's you're in the middle of it and you have to step outside and not have sugar and caffeine to realise how powerful. And I felt awful as well, by the way. I enjoyed the coffee and enjoyed the cake, but five minutes later I felt just dreadful. So that was the story of my true retreat. And I kind of slip in and out of the meditation practice, but I walk most days. Even during the lockdown, I was managing to get out and walk. Sometimes I listen to music or more likely podcasts, but sometimes I don't listen to anything and I just walk. And I find myself in a meditative walk there is a thing which is walking meditation which again is slightly more formal than what what i'm talking about there's a formal practice of meditation but there's being meditative which you can do every second of the day even in a extremely noisy place anyway the book that i'm going to read from today is called teach yourself to meditate by eric harrison who's an australian i'm sure there's plenty of books that have a title similar to this meditation for beginners there's probably meditation for dummies i'm sure so when i came across this book about four years ago i picked it up and i was expecting the usual stuff i started reading it and there were so many light bulbs that went off and aha moments as they call them that i kept reading it and bought it for the ludicrously low price of one pound so sorry mr harrison if you ever hear this I should have paid more for your book, but it was in uh, the Works bookshop, and I think it was in what they call the bargain bin, and that's not meant to demean Mr. Harrison at all, who I would like to have on this podcast. I may well try to find him in the future and get him on here. But one rather humorous thing I remember from that trip to the shops, where I was mostly browsing, but I did pick up this book and a couple of other books, was that Jordan's autobiography, Katie Price. Well, no, in fact, Jordan's second autobiography, second, was in one of the other shops for something like twelve ninety nine, or maybe even fifteen ninety nine hardback edition. And I got this unbelievably transformative, potentially life-changing book for £1. That's the kind of world we live in. <laughs> so anyway, I made a point of photocopying some of the short meditations and I gave them to my parents. My dad eventually read this book and loved it. And even before he started meditating, I think he read through the book twice because you can just read it as a book. It's got so many insights. Obviously, logically, that would lead you to start doing the practice. And my dad started meditating then, 2017. And he will tell you that it's been absolutely transformative. I should tell you that 2017, early 2017, he was 70 years old. Again, making an absolute mockery of our culture's idea, very much 
promoted in conscious and unconscious and subtle ways by media and television programs, the idea that you can't change beyond a certain age. When I get to the alternative media style programs on this podcast, I'll talk about how so much of our culture is geared towards putting you in a state where you want to buy things. Advertising obviously preys on this. It's not so much a conspiracy, it's good business, let's call it. It's capitalism showing a certain side of its character. A person in a more vulnerable state who doesn't feel good about themselves is constantly watching television and seeing better versions of, supposedly, I should say, of human beings, you know, people with success, quote-unquote, with money, better bodies, apparently more fulfilment, more friends than you've got. It puts you in a state where you need to make yourself feel better. Having this book will negate that, I'm going to argue. It's not to say that there's anything particularly wrong with going to a restaurant and gorging every now and again, but if you're doing it regularly to make yourself feel better, to try and fill the hole that possibly we all have, you know, there's a certain emptiness, I think, perhaps that's to do with the human condition. It used to be filled by having more family around. There are certain things that have been lost, undoubtedly, in the modern world. Anyway, that slight tangent aside... I'm going to start reading a few passages from this book. I was tempted to read the whole book in perhaps two or three parts, but I then decided I wanted to pick a few, but a few turned into a bit more than a few, so we'll see how we get on. And I'm actually going to start reading from the very beginning of the book, the introduction. So this is Eric Harrison, Teach Yourself to Meditate, subtitle, Over 20 Simple Exercises for Peace, Health and Clarity of Mind. And the book is in fact divided into what he calls basic meditations or spot meditations, which basically means quick meditations, and then text on things to do with meditation, for example, the technique, but also different states of mind, why we meditate, etc. It's a very, very comprehensive book. It's a book that, I don't know, ticks all the boxes, seems to have every base covered and anything you'd ever really want to know about the basic aspects of meditation is covered in this book. So, introduction. People often ask me, what is meditation like? How do you do it? Let me answer these questions by using an example. It is spring in Perth as I write this book. It is the wettest season in 20 years and the wild flowers are sensational. My backyard is Kings Park, which is 160 hectares of bushland between my home in Subiaco and the Swan River. I escape there at least once a day. Often I enter the park with my head full of thoughts, mentally writing this book as I walk. But the scene is too lovely to ignore. The rainbow-coloured parrots are feeding on the bottle brush flowers, the air is rich with scent, and the afternoon sun shines on the white bark of the gum trees. Wild flowers are very seductive. Like babies and cats, they demand your attention. I soon find myself examining a blossoming bush, Some flowers are in full bloom, some are half-opened. Others are already drying out and decaying, but all are perfect. An ant is running up the stem, and the broken strands of a cobweb waft on the still air. The thoughts and concerns I brought into the park have all slipped away. I'm in a different time and space. This is meditation, a state in which the body is relaxed, the mind is quiet, and we are alive to the sensations of the moment. We all know moments like these. They are everyday events. They happen to all of us when conditions are right, perhaps while stroking a cat or listening to music or enjoying a cup of tea on the veranda. 
Yet when conditions are not right, we can walk through the park and be aware of nothing but our thoughts, worries and obsessions. Those peaceful moments don't always come easily. They most frequently occur when something holds our attention. At such times the mind is focused. It is not drifting aimlessly. Focusing the mind is the secret of meditation. We meditate by focusing on something. This becomes our meditation object. Anything will do. However, people commonly meditate on breathing, a single repeated word, known as a mantra, a flower or a mental image. We lightly examine it to help distance ourselves from thoughts. This is easy to do for a few seconds, but the mind soon wants more entertainment and starts thinking again. The challenge is to let the thoughts go and return to the object again and again and again. Each time we drop a thought, the mind feels freer. When we try to meditate, the world doesn't vanish and we don't pass into oblivion. Thoughts still arise, a headache may remain, and noises may disturb us. Gradually they become less aggravating and we feel more at ease regardless. Meditation is much more than a technique for relaxing. It also makes our minds more clear and alert. We become more sensitive to our own feelings and the detail of the world around us. We call this quality of mind awareness. It is what distinguishes a meditator from someone who is simply relaxed. If we meditate for a few minutes each day, the results can be deep and long-lasting. As we become more relaxed and aware, every aspect of our life can benefit. So that's part of the introduction. And as he was mentioning there about the ant, that was something I wanted to say about the retreat that I forgot to a moment ago. During this retreat, we had to do little chores, just things like a little bit of sweeping, just to keep the the meditation centre ticking over. And I took to something that, again, would be considered a cliché in, um, I'm going to say Western, that's a bit general, but the Western society that I grew up in. And that is watching insects. Now, obviously in Thailand, there's a lot of insects of various types. And I took to just doing something I'd never done in my whole life, which is to just stop and watch them doing their thing. It's quite fascinating. I remember once, I think I was actually in a guest house and uh, maybe I'd been eating a cake or something and there were some crumbs on a a table, I think it was. And about 10 minutes later, after I'd been eating this cake, I looked over and there were ants carrying this crumb in lines of two, you know, the old army of ants, all working together for a common cause. And the mention of cats, yes, a couple of cats in the last year or so have entered my parents' life and I think again as my parents would say have enriched it greatly something absolutely wonderful cats are incredibly meditative obviously they don't make a lot of noise (laughs) that's one of the great things about them and they have a peaceful way about them admittedly they probably spend more time sleeping than actually meditating but you get the idea so in the next chapter he's talking about when people first start meditating In the first meditation, people may feel sleepy as they let themselves relax and their adrenaline levels drop. They often come to class after a hard day's work and need to rest. Although they relax, I insist they stay awake and I almost always get my way. Meditation is not about going to sleep. The discussion afterwards helps people understand what happened in the session. People are usually brighter in the second meditation, which is usually one aimed to develop clarity of mind or introduce the kind of practices that can be done whenever an opportunity presents during the day. We may do just one exercise or three or four in quick succession. It is easy to enter deep states of meditation in a class. 
People who are afraid they won't be able to need not worry. In a supportive environment, free from distractions, and with the guidance of a teacher, meditation comes easily. So yes, you can learn to meditate on your own. You may never have to meditate with other people, but I've been to meditation groups, and as I said with the retreat, you know, this collective energy is a wonderful thing. And obviously there's a sociable aspect. You know, meditation classes are not silent retreats. You talk before the meditation sessions, there's normally a break, and then you talk afterwards. Invariably, you know, you will find a certain type of person will come. They usually won't be an aggressive person. And there's a nice vibe, there's a nice atmosphere to meditation groups. And of course, strength in numbers. Now, of course, one of the questions is, what are the benefits of meditation? And you might be surprised to see how many and how varied they are. Again, reading from the book, so relaxation. After a serious crisis or years of chronic stress, many people lose their ability to relax. There are millions who require pills for a function as natural as sleeping. Being unable to relax can easily lead to a poor quality of life and health problems. Learning to relax consciously and to do it quickly in any situation is the first step in meditation. By relaxing, we unwind not just the body, but also the mental preoccupations that wire us up in the first place. Relaxing consciously is usually first done in a quiet place with eyes closed. Eventually we can be relaxed while driving, eating, talking, even while having an argument. We don't blow the fuses and can quickly repair ourselves at the end of the day. Now moving on to health. Just to be more relaxed each day is enormously valuable for our health. Meditation takes us one step further. Hundreds of medical surveys support the contention that meditation is good for health. These are the most common findings. Meditation releases muscular tension. This automatically relieves pain, increases mobility and lets the body relax. The breath, the body fluids and the nerve impulses can flow more freely. Meditation lowers high blood pressure. The release in muscular tension makes the body more pliable. The heart doesn't have to pump as hard to force the blood through the veins and arteries. When stressed, our blood becomes thick with cholesterol. This thins out when we relax. Meditation stimulates the immune system and the production of white blood cells. The immune system winds down when the body is stressed. The healing process works best when the body is relaxed or sleeping. Meditation speeds recovery rates after illness or surgery. Meditation also opens constricted air passages. Meditation increases blood circulation to the digestive tract, the skin and the brain. When we are stressed, our digestive system shuts down. The blood supply is redirected into the big muscles for the fight-or-flight reflex. Meditation reverses this and the digestive system can function efficiently again. Improved circulation means the entire body is better fed with nutrients and waste products removed more efficiently. Meditation dramatically affects hormonal activity. Obviously, the stress hormones diminish during meditation. However, it also appears that a meditator's pattern of hormonal secretions is generally typical of someone 5 or 10 years younger than themselves. This suggests that the physical stresses of age do not weigh so heavily on a meditator. Meditators are like people who are very fit. They often look younger than their actual age. Meditation balances left and right hemisphere activity. Each hemisphere of the brain governs the motor coordination of the opposite side of the body. If one hemisphere is overactive, the body can tend to be slightly lopsided, twisted or out of balance. This naturally creates physical tension. Anxious people tend to tie themselves in knots. Simplistically, the left hemisphere usually governs thinking, while the right governs feelings. 
Many of us get caught in one side or the other. We may be thinking excessively all day or awash with emotion. Meditation balances these. A meditator is capable of clear thinking while still in tune with his or her emotional responses. In general health, meditation acts like naturopathic treatment. It brings the whole body into harmony. The results are slower, more pervasive and not as easy to measure scientifically. However, most people, after three or four weeks of steady practice, will report improvement in general health and well-being. Inner peace and harmony. We may feel that inner peace is impossible because the world or our life is in chaos. Yet tranquility, however fleeting, is always with us when we relax. In those moments when we fully enjoy the beauty of nature or play with our dog, our fear and anger are suspended, whatever the day was like. Even chronic pain seems more tolerable. Concentration. Stress undermines our ability to concentrate. If we try to think and do a dozen things at once, we do none of them well. Meditation trains us to focus on one thing at a time. We become skilled at discarding the mental trivia and unproductive obsessions. This gives space for us to work so we can bring all of the mind to the task at hand. There are many other benefits here, but um, I'll go forward. Inspiration and vision. I get so many ideas during a meditation class, said one visual artist. They last all week. Meditation puts verbal thought in the background and creates a space for inspiration to arise. We can activate the right side of the brain and dream consciousness while fully awake. This promotes the flashes of insight that often emerge in daydream or reverie. Meditation can help resolve difficult problems. It enables you to stand back like withdrawing to a mountain to survey the terrain below. We can extract from the painful minutiae and get the big view. This process is not like thinking things through, however. Answers often come in a flash when the mind is tranquil. Self-awareness and therapy. Self-knowledge starts with an awareness of the body. The hallmark of neurosis is lack of this awareness. Such people don't even notice when they light another cigarette or put food in their mouths. They tend to live in their heads. Anorexics, for example, are obsessed with the idea, not the reality of their bodies. Meditation brings us down to earth. It puts us in touch with the sensations of our bodies. Recognising the reality of who we are may be uncomfortable, but self-awareness has to start with this. Relaxation loosens the tensions of the day. Deep relaxation can release the chronic inbuilt tension of years. This may in turn loosen the repressed emotions that set those tensions in place. When the mind is strong and tranquil, it often throws up buried memories and emotions, allowing them to be acknowledged and cleared. In its own way, meditation covers exactly the same ground as any psychotherapy. Now, I've had a couple of these moments when I've had tension and heavy feelings and stress that I've just kept inside for years. And there's a moment when it's released. And one of the funny things that happens is you you often start laughing or you get this enormous smile on your face that you absolutely cannot fake. It just comes. And I remember just, it was a heavy feeling. But after a a minute or so of this feeling being released, I felt incredibly light. So those are some of the benefits. There are other ones as well. One um, meditation that I do quite often is to do with closing my eyes and focusing on sounds. So if we take what seems to be scientific fact that Blind people often have very good hearing. That's obviously because they've lost their visual sense, so it's either some kind of compensation or just the fact that they are better able to focus on other senses, for example, hearing. 
So when I used to ride on metros, both in Thailand and also in Spain, normally going to classes, but sometimes going to socialize, I would often shut my eyes and focus on the sounds. And I always found it a wonderful experience. Generally on the metro, you would hear a couple of conversations going on around you. I think particularly in Thailand, because I had only really a rudimentary knowledge of Thai. So it was especially good because I didn't know what the people were saying in their conversation. So you you could just focus on the rhythm of the conversation without being distracted by the words. So there'd be conversations, you would hear the movements of the train, and there is something quite relaxing about a train in motion, probably more with an overground train, that's all ch-ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. You'd hear a few squeaks, you'd hear the sound of the brakes, the metro train gradually slowing down as it came to a station, then you'd hear the announcement of the station, then you'd hear the sound of people getting on and off the train, then the train would start again, then you'd focus again on the conversations and it was really a great exercise and all the time I would be practicing my breathing so abdominal breathing which I don't think is covered in the parts of the book I'm reading today but just to say that abdominal breathing you know 10 deep abdominal breaths in the morning will probably change your day just that alone it doesn't cost any money it doesn't take any time you know all these excuses about oh I'm too busy Yes, I understand someone with uh, who's a working mother, for example. But I've I've known working mothers who meditate, so <laughs> don't think there's too many excuses. We always find time for the things which are worthwhile. This next part is called being relaxed and aware during the day. Quick word about alpha and beta brain waves. When we relax, our minds literally slow down. You can tell your mind doesn't jump from thought to thought so rapidly. It is convenient to call this state alpha, since the alpha brain waves between 7 and 14 cycles per second are dominant when we relax. The faster brain waves, 14 to 30 cycles per second, are called beta. Better. No, not better. (laughs) They're not better. This is our usual mentally active state of mind. Sleep brain waves are called theta and delta. I think I pronounced those right. The alpha state has a distinct mental quality we can learn to cultivate. In alpha, sensing is predominant to thinking. We are mentally receptive rather than active. Our attention is in the present rather than in the past or future. Alpha is an accepting and non-judgmental state. And then the book talks about certain deeper states of mind, but I'm just going to skip forward slightly. There are deeper states than those outlined above, which are hard enough to describe, let alone experience. Much more important is to develop breadth in your practice, to be centered and aware right through the day. It's easy to relax in a class, lying down with your eyes closed, someone guiding you, a quiet atmosphere and the support of other meditators. Gradually you need to abandon these props so you can meditate sitting up or walking, with eyes open, no one guiding you, in noisy circumstances, and in the company of people who think you are a fool. And a lot of people will find that their friends will make fun of them, and uh, all kinds of spiritual cliches will be uttered or I should say comments about spiritual people, which are cliches. It may take a few attempts, but you can soon learn to meditate with your eyes open. This gives great flexibility and extra clarity of mind. You can meditate at waiting rooms, while walking at lectures. You can meditate on things of beauty, the sky, the ocean, a bush in flower, birds in flight. You can meditate in the midst of activity. 
You can learn to meditate in different postures, no longer needing a certain chair or cushion or room. You're able to meditate at the dentist or waiting to pick up the kids from school. Eventually, you can meditate when circumstances are far from ideal, when you can hear the TV next door and the traffic outside and the kids fighting down the hall. You may be exhausted, angry or miserable, yet you find meditation is not only possible, it is just what you need. At this point, our meditation starts to become a continuous practice. It is the art of always finding the point of balance in the unpredictable weather of our lives. There's a short section that I'm not going to read, but just briefly comment on. And it talks about bliss junkies. It's people who are looking for bliss states. As I mentioned earlier with a person who left the meditation retreat, I think he did admit afterwards that he was chasing a state. And meditation is not about that. I don't know about you, but I've found most times that I've chased something in my life, even if I've eventually got it, it hasn't quite been as satisfying as when it just comes up organically. It's about creating the right conditions rather than necessarily chasing specific things. (laughs) 